Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. We come to you on this very Christmassy day. Merry, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, Happy Miggle Moose, Merry Kringle, and Happy Festivus for the rest of us. We're to discuss uh, what we think are the top, a little bit different this week, the top three stories of 2022 that we wish had a little bit more attention and discussed a little bit more. With me again is longtime editor, correspondent, and bon vivant from CQ at Roll Call, John Bennett, and former federal prosecutor. And of course, uh, the, uh, he has his own podcast. Michael, you got to plug the podcast. Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor. Well, it's a podcast about books that tell interesting stories. And it's called That Said with Michael Zeldin. When we resume in January, we've got episodes with Nina Totenberg about her book, um, Carl Bernstein about his book, and um, many others. So stay, uh, so tune in. Yeah, luminaries, love to. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have a happy Festivus for the rest of us. Stick around. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. As we're going to take a little bit different tack today uh, from uh, usual and not discuss the topics of the day, but talk a little bit about the, the stories that we wish had garnered more attention during the course of the year. And I'm going to kick it off with uh, my number three, I think, is, uh, uh, well, I, I would say the Supreme Court <laughs> is, is my, my number three. And I would say that uh, what I would have liked to have seen is less talking about the issues uh, uh, in front of the Supreme Court and more a little bit about how the Supreme Court has changed over the last since uh, Donald Trump appointed three and created a conservative uh, six inside uh, the uh, in most and all of them, all these six that have been appointed are conservative Catholics. And speaking as a uh, a cafeteria Catholic, it was uh, very frightening to me to see uh, those, and I know that some of them are very conservative Catholics, Opus Dei Catholics. And for those that uh, don't know what that is, that's the uh, the Taliban of the Catholic faith um, uh, take over the Supreme Court. So, John, uh, Michael, jump in at any point in time. Do you think that? How do you think we've handled the Supreme Court in the last year? Well, it's interesting because the Supreme Court, of course, on social issues that are hot button issues like um, Dobbs, the Roe v. Wade um, decision, um, get all the, the coverage. But from my standpoint, as a criminal law guy, um, the Supreme Court has actually been um, surprisingly fair. Um, and 
It's especially true in matters that have come before them that relate to January 6th and, and Trump's uh, assertions of, of privilege. This notion that somehow because Trump picked them, they were going to be in his pocket legally has just not been the case. So too with um, federal courts around the country, appellate courts around the country, as we saw in the 11th Circuit rebuke of though a Trump judge, the, the argument in the special master case, two, jump, two Trump judges and a George W. Bush judge. So I think that while, you know, abortion and, and matters like that will grab and continue to grab and importantly grab the headlines, and I disagree, of course, with the court's decision in, in, in Dobbs, though personally, I think that it would have been a better um, decision in Roe, whether it was what, if it were founded on equal protection, liberty, then implied act of right of privacy. But, and so I disagree with the, the court on these hot button social issues. I think that it's just not been the horror show that, that has been uh, predicted, which I think is good. That all said, the, the leak of the Dobbs decision, the Alito's politics, you know, coming, uh, uh, seeping into the matter, Clarence Thomas and, and his wife and their failure of Thomas to consider recusal, all that stuff is terrible for the court. Um, and I think, though, it's gotten, you know, its fair share of, of coverage. Just the other stuff, you know, the, the, the tier two stories that I think uh, could have been covered a little bit better and you know, good for the court on, on, on some of them. Do you think it's been compromised? The court? Yeah. Well, in, um, in, in the sense that it's not as trusted an organization as it once was. I don't know that it ever really deserved to be trusted. <laughs> I mean, other than really during the, um, the, the, the great heyday of the, um, civil rights, uh, court, decisions um the court generally speaking is is conservative it's not yeah. you know it's not a force of 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 progress earl warren's court was really an anomaly the, you know the long history of, of the supreme court so it's not like all of a sudden that which has you know stood as a bastion of you know progressive thinking um all of a sudden you know changed i mean look at <clears throat> what you said in an earlier show about the First Amendment, which is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because it presents a clear and present danger. So what was the context of, of that case? It was a question of whether or not Eugene Debs's conviction for speaking out against World War I's draft could be upheld. And it was upheld because they said speaking out against the draft in World War I presented a clear and present danger akin to shouting fire in a, in a crowded movie theater. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who wrote that decision in a, in the decision that came about a year or so later, reversed course and said, I was just dead wrong about that. And I shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have said that um, and wrote a dissent. He and um, Brandeis wrote a dissent to this, but that was the majority of the court. And so people who think, oh, well, the Supreme Court has been, you know, this, politically progressive organization just don't know the court <laughs> well no they all you have to do is look at the dread scott decision which directly led to the to or some say directly led to the 
Civil War. I, they have never that it's often been that it's underreported, John, or misreported. Yep, I think uh, the media's done a a decent job. We we did though, um, for various reasons. I think take the bait that, as Michael said, that this uh, Supreme Court was going to be, you know, this far right horror show, and that hasn't played out. I said here on a recent show um, that I expect the court, and they've done this so far for the most part on these elections cases and and cases related to Trump. Um, you know, he thought he put his judges on the court and that they would somehow owe him for the rest of his life. And I'm assuming his, his kid's life and, and some of the uh, folks that have worked and for him. And descendants ad infinitum. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But it hasn't worked out that way. Um, you know, these are, these are serious jurists, serious legal minds. Uh, they don't feel beholden to Donald Trump uh, any more than you or I do. Um, so, you know, I, I think the media fell for that at the beginning and, and ran, you know, they were given that bone by their sources on the left and, and boy, they, they chewed on it like a dog on the porch for, for months and months, but it just hasn't played out that way. Um, but I think since then the coverage has gotten, um, you know, a little more realistic. So I'll, I'll ask you, John, what, what do you think of one of your top three stories that has gone underreported? Well, I wanted to start with, uh, actually wrote it down. Uh, I actually did my homework. Brian gave his homework, everybody. We had to do our homework. I wanted to start with this. Why do Democratic voters and some Democratic elected officials seem to hate Joe Biden so very much? Ooh, good point. If you look at polling, majorities, sometimes into the 60% of Democrats, sometimes higher than that, uh, depending on the poll, um, and what's going on in the news, I, I suppose, uh, you know, the majorities of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to seek a second term. I know he's an 80 year old man who sometimes looks like an 80 year old man. He sometimes sounds like an 80 year old man uh, after, excuse me, after public events. He never knows which way to exit the stage or the room. And and that's a bad look when you're 80. Uh, he still has the occasional gaffe, though. Thanks to Barack Obama, he has gotten a lot better. He's not the gaffe machine. He was a senator. <laughs> um, Obama told him to clean it up, and he did. Uh, but but look, from a Democratic perspective, you know, he used the reconciliation rule, the budget reconciliation rule, to get a lot of legislation done. He cut um, he got a gun control deal. Now it was incremental, and it's you know it's it's not nearly what most Democrats want. Uh, certainly not the far left. Uh, he got the infrastructure bill that Trump never even sniffed getting done. Uh, and he oh, has we heard about it every damn week, every week, four right. years. Right. It's, so it's he, infrastructure week here at the White House. We have right. none. <laughs> he got that done. He's gotten a lot done. Some of it's incremental, but that's how and the Republicans campaigned on that bill, too, right. even and though they, they ran on against that. it. Um, the, the last bill that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act had a lot of sure it had a lot. Now, the media, one thing that we've we've fallen for, and I'm not sure why the Inflation Reduction Act. Sure, it had a lot of clean and, and green energy um, provisions in it and spending toward those goals in it. But it it had a lot of other stuff in it. Now, the media is calling it Biden's Clean Energy Act. I, I don't really understand that at all. Um, but he got that done, too. And he he got that through 
and he got a lot of that clean energy stuff for so from a democratic perspective not necessarily my perspective um he has accomplished a lot he's put a lot of federal judges though you know some democrats want chuck schumer to move faster processing the judicial nominations biden's put a hell of a lot of judges on federal benches across the country and he's going to do even more um you know between now and and even when he has the decide if he's going to run again to build the organization and start raising money and everything you have to do to mount a serious White House campaign. So um, I'm just a little baffled at at this point, even though he would be, you know, what, 80, 82, 83 when he was sworn in again, who do they have to do the job? Forget how Biden makes you feel and you're nervous that he's old and you don't like that he looks like an older gentleman. Um, who do they have that can do the job better? than joe biden no I, and they still hate see, him right but so that that that's what confuses me i understand the age is a concern absolutely um but at the same time you know it, it's just the numbers of democrats that don't want him to run again that's surprising to me i think that's one uh, it, that's a cool story to cover because i don't think we've gotten a handle on it i think in the press we've we assume that it's all about age but i think there's an underlying feeling that in many, and I wrote a little bit about this on the on the Respect for Marriage Act. He, I think Joe Biden is the old style politician who understands that you don't get. He's not the Newt Gingrich, you know, where it's all or nothing. It's a zero sum game. He understands the art of half a loaf, and that I think angers uh, some of the more progressive members and even some of the moderates in the Democratic Party who think who look. And equate that to being wishy-washy, not sticking up for your, you know, for your beliefs. But that's that's I, I'm guessing. But it, it it's a story that deserves more attention. Michael, I think all of these um, stories around Joe Biden are anxiety based about electability, and it's not so much policy. Um, or age, uh, or infirmity. It's is the only question is is he electable, reelectable, and I think people have anxiety about that. I, I think that they see uh, uh, a Ron DeSantis, youth more youthful candidate um, facing a older Joe Biden, and they wonder whether or not circles will be run around their 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 candidate. And so I think from a electability standpoint, there's reason to um, ha have anxiety. But as you guys have mentioned, in terms of his accomplishments, uh, uh, his Democratic agenda accomplishments uh, have been terrific. He, he's gotten more legislation passed, I mean, more than Obama did. I mean, yes, Obama got Obamacare, which is, you know, uh, the first time in how many decades that we have you know, some form of yeah Clinton tried it uh, and couldn't do it Truman tried it and couldn't couldn't FDR tried it and couldn't do it yeah. you know so you know kudos to Obama for using his sixty seat majority in the in the Senate to to push that through even if there are concessions made to insurance companies to get the sixtieth vote out of the senator from Connecticut it, it still was an accomplishment but. And uh, but Biden has accomplished a lot 
um, and there's a record to run on. And if inflation uh, begins to ease, we I saw statistics yesterday about the percentage of um, decrease in gas prices and food prices, particularly chickens. Um, the prospects of a president running on that record with a strong jobs economy and uh, a weakening inflation, I think Democrats, you know, should be happy as long as he remains, you know, cognitively competent, to, <laughs> you know, to, to, to and, and physically capable. I mean, it's ambulatory. <laughs> it's a it's a no, it's a grueling thing to run for president. Yes, it's you, a grueling to cover as, it. You, as you guys know, I was elected to the be an advisory neighborhood commissioner here in the District of Columbia. So I'm an elected official. I had two I have two thousand people that that I represent in my single member district. To campaign in that contested campaign that I ran four years ago was months of work for that little you know block of of of, of voters. The physical toll that running for president takes on you is, you know, it's incalculable. And so you have to make sure that your your candidate is capable of of doing that. And I think that gives people anxiety. And, and so give us a little anxiety, which is your, what do you, of the three that I asked, which would you like to discuss first of what you think is the least reported stories of the year? The 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 fact that a half a million insect species face extinction threatening the collapse of nature's ecosystem go for it yes uh, i think honeybees. that when you look at record breaking heat waves and droughts around the world flooding in pakistan we've the world's population has reached over 8 billion and you see that the whole system derives from the bottom of the food chain on on up. Birds eat insects, other animals eat birds, you know, that whole the the the, the hip bone connected to the thigh bone sort of thought sort of stuff. And the use of pesticides and the growing human population is threatening the extinction of a half a million insect species, which if it's not checked, is going to have devastating consequences for uh, the earth. And you, you, you have to go to like biology today or something to read stories about this. Um, and yet it's a critical building block for a healthy globe. Yeah, and I, I'll add this to that. That's a great, that's, you know, I, it, it's so underreported, you forget that it's a, a major story. But there is a one chemical that, I, and I did a few stories on this years ago on um, Duersban. Uh, it was called. It, it's uh, the chemical is chlorpyrifos. Uh, Part of it is uh, is the same uh, organophosphate that was used in, in the Cyclone B and uh, to gas people in at Auschwitz. The this particular, if you've ever had wasps or bees in your backyard and you hit them with one of those sprays and they drop dead instantly. That's one of the chemicals that was used and it was determined that even a, there's no there's no minimum standard for any uh, uh, placement of this in the ecosystem is dangerous. There's no minimally acceptable standard. 
and they would spray it on crops and they would put it in. in I got involved in doing a story on this years ago when in uh, mid-Missouri there was a a courthouse where it was sprayed in the duck system to kill uh, a, a group of wasps. 26 people worked in the uh, courthouse, in the small courthouse, and 24 of them came down with chemical lupus. And then we found that it, there were stories all around uh, the country and Dow Chemical, which uh, created it, fought very hard to make sure that this wasn't reported. And then it was during the Trump administration and he and he, it had been banned for indoor use, but still used and is still in the ecosystem as of this day. And there's no safe amount and it kills not only insects, but it causes cancer. And it's one of the biggest problems that we have in our ecosystem completely underreported. I, I find it frightening and fascinating. John? Yeah, I read uh, the other day that something like I was editing a story by a colleague who covers energy and environment issues, and um, he quoted a statistic from uh, one of the uh, environmental groups uh, around town that only five or six, five to six percent of plastic bottles are actually recycled. Um I had my hands on two plastic bottles yesterday alone that I just water bottles that I remember. So I think we got a long way to go. Um, I the don't microplastics are huge. They they say yeah. what you you eat the equivalent of three or four credit cards every year in, in the food. I, yeah, I think we have a long way to go. Um, I think the media though is uh, danger close, as former Air Force Chief of Staff Buzz Mosley used to say, to you know turning so many stories trying too hard to make a certain story a climate story and um everything is is a death knell to the planet and and you know we're all going to die uh very soon um, i'm looking out my window now there are a lot of trees out there the grass still turns green and then dies and then turns green and you know there are guys in my neighborhood with leaf blowers and and they're cutting Those the grass bastards. so i don't I I I am skeptical if if this if the situation is as dire as we're all, we the collective we uh, are really making it making it out to be. Um, well, I, it, I agree. And with again, George we Carlin. can't we can't try too hard because we we care about the issue as as human beings and we're also journalists to try to turn every story into a climate story. That's something that I've really noticed in the last year to two years and. Um, I, I just find the stories. I find the premises of these stories really strange. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll end with that. Well, before we go to the break, with what George Carlin said, it's the planet's going to be fine. It's people that are going to go away. So <laughs> we're going to do that to ourselves. Stick around. We'll, we'll have round two of the least most least reported stories of the year when we come back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast. To help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. 
Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and uh, we're talking about what we think are the least reported stories of the year. Uh, we gave our round one. Here's round two of our what we think are the least reported stories of the year. Michael, I'll let you start out with that. Julian Assange. Ah. Julian Assange is facing extradition in a case that I think should have everybody in the media on on high alert. The notion that I think he is a, I, I, let me say, I think he's a, a journalist. And I think what he did is covered by um, the First Amendment in the same way that New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers was covered by the First Amendment. And the idea that we are pursuing him for the prosecution of the release of information um, to me is a frightening prospect for, for the media. And yet the only coverage of it really on mainstream media, as opposed to left-wing um, media, is this guy's a threat, posed a threat, threatened our manner of gathering information and that therefore this guy needs to go to jail without any respect to the First Amendment issues. If you watch cable news and whenever there's an odd story here and there on Assange, the people who come on are the former NSA person, the former CIA person who, you know, spout this notion that that Assange is a threat um, to the world as we know it. And never do you have anyone coming on from media free press organization saying, not so fast, what you do to this guy could be precedent setting for the rest of us in the media and slow down, um, uh, you know, intelligence community, um, because what you're doing is, is, is a threat. Um, so I think the fact that it's not covered and that the media who faces, you know, the greatest backlash um, in theory for a prosecution of a person like Assange is, you know, sitting quiet, uh, to me is, is disappointing. John, you agree? You know, I've never come to a firm stance on Mr. Assange and, and what should happen to him. Um, I'm not sure he's my definition of a journalist, but, um, you know, that's a pretty broad category these days of who can be considered, um, who can be considered a journalist. So um, I'm going to have to vote pass on this one. I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I've never, I, I've never really even um, educated myself a lot about his case. Well, you, you're just, you're, you're just uh, confirming what Michael's saying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I, you know, I know Julian Assange and and Edward Snowden are two of the most um, the, are the biggest lightning rods in in journalism, and I have different opinions on each. Uh, Edward Snowden, I I think um, I, I'm not convinced he wasn't a, a a Russian actor from the very beginning, but uh, what he did was in in releasing his secrets was important. His running away from facing the music, I I think was loathsome. So he's different, and I think we often confuse the two. And I think Julian Assange, uh, Assange is a, an editor, a publisher, an activist, and we always stress the activist part when we report on him, especially when um, on the WikiLeaks thing. But what he is, what 
I think Michael has pointed out, and rightly so, is that what the government will do to Julian Assange, they will then in turn turn around and do to us. And they will use the justification for what they did to Julian Assange to further destroy and erode the First Amendment. And that leads me to my second pick, and I think that is the destruction of, of, I think it goes underreported because honestly, we can't report on ourselves with a dam. But if we were a stronger institution, we would push back against uh, uh, what's going on with Julian Assange. But the consolidation of media has destroyed independent media, and we sit and watch passively as the government slowly destroys what's left of free speech under the guise of protecting us and encouraging free speech. So I'm going to side with with Michael on that, but I'm also going to say my my second story is is that what's 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 happened to the media. But we we've talked about that a lot. John, what's your second story? Yeah, I'm going to go with what's really happening at the southern border. Um, and again, ah. I'm going to this is a media critique. And I know you've been down there a lot. You've covered it a lot yourself. But this is going to be another media critique because um, just a short number of weeks ago, we had a thing called a midterm election. And during that cycle, the media told me, and I'm part of the media, uh, but don't cover these issues. And and I, my, my, my shop certainly did not do this. Uh, we covered immigration policy on Capitol Hill pretty well uh, this year. Uh, but uh, especially television media, cable news uh, leading that category, told me for months and months that Republicans were distorting the situation at the border for their political gain to scare voters, especially independent, moderate voters, uh, women voters, into voting for their candidates as they tried to take the House and Senate. Well, it's now December 18th, and the media is telling me, especially cable news, I'm, I'm pretty much talking about cable news here, uh, there's a, that there's a crisis at the southern border and that migrants are pouring in and can't be handled. They can't be processed by the federal government. So which is it, guys? Is it a political ploy by Republicans or is it a crisis or do you just not have anything else that's that's keeping people's attention on the screen? <laughs> what, what's really going on down there? Well, I'll, I'll say this on that. It is damned. First of all, most of the problems south of the border we created. Uh, Smedley Butler, the second uh, most highly decorated Marine in the history of the U.S., uh, wrote a book about it and uh, talked about the wars for profit. And at the same time, uh, and that was 100 years ago, and he said he was a de facto uh, hired gun for dull pineapple and and for other you know uh, um, people in the United States, other businesses. So um, I, I think that there's oh, there has been a problem. The current problem on the border is a part and parcel because of a uh, what we've done politically in the U.S. Beginning with uh, you can go back to the Monroe Doctrine. You know, uh, you can play around with the rest of the world, but we own the Western Hemisphere, you bastards. And we have tried to keep labor cheap, and and and, and in doing so. We have really screwed up. But that aside, the real problems began in the 70s with the collapse of the peso in Mexico and uh, the collapse of the oil economy. And then there's been collapses in Venezuela and Nicaragua. And all, all of those have led to 
people coming across. Now, when you talk about it, and it's a very nuanced subject because, and, and there aren't many reporters who understand that. You could say, hey, we've got more people. Well, the numbers, yes, <clears throat> have gone up because we put more people on the border. Naturally, they're going to catch more people. Is there a, a crisis? There has been a crisis ongoing since the 70s. And no one, by the way, wants to deal with it in government. When was the last time, you know, the Simpson-Mazzoli Act was passed in 1985 or 86. It was illegal to cross the border illegally, but not illegal to hire people who crossed the border illegally until the Simpson-Mazzoli Act. But how many times has it been used to prosecute large companies who hire and entice these people across? Never, hardly ever. And it was it was even Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush who tried to come up with passes so people could come across and work their way to citizenship and make money. And we killed that in Congress. And now it's a political football and it's gotten it, it continues to propagate as a problem because there are politicians in this country that play with it rather than try to solve it. So it angers me from our end that we don't talk about the nuance. We let them frame the argument and then we go and then we talk about the crisis. And you're right. It wasn't a crisis before the 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 the, the elections. It's a crisis after the election. Well, it's the same it's the same thing going on and has been since the late 70s. So I find the whole issue disingenuous from our point of view and from po political point of view. Michael, you were I I, I know you were going sorry for my long rant on it, but having been down there and covering it, that's my view. What I would add to your analysis is we also don't cover U.S. foreign policy in, in um, Latin and South America. What we have done yes. over the years to destabilize these economies, whenever uh, uh, um, the left, a left-wing politician comes to power, whether it's Venezuela, Nicaragua, Guatemala, you, you find a country that has um, a, a progressive leader and then look at U.S. foreign policy with respect to those countries and what we do in order to um, ensure the demise of those those um, countries' uh, leadership uh, team, which then creates vacuums that then creates opportunities for destabilization of of the economy, which leads to people fleeing. And so, it always strikes me so. Ironic, maybe is the is the wrong word. So hypocritical that that we look at other of our adversaries' behavior in foreign countries in their perimeter, um, and and point a finger and say how terrible what they're doing is, but we don't point a finger at ourselves and say, hey, maybe it's if our we fault. had a different foreign policy with respect to some of these countries, maybe there would be greater economic opportunity, less violence, more stability, and we wouldn't see the consequences of it, the unintended consequence perhaps, but the consequence, which is the um, crisis at, at, at the border. It, you know, it's just such a lack of either honesty or self-awareness as, as, as it reflects, you know, what is the cause of this? What would cause a person 
to to leave their home where they probably live for multiple generations, generations to walk across a terribly dangerous terrain to enter into a country illegally. Well, it's because that country is no longer safe. Well, then you say, well, let's figure out why those countries are no longer safe. What's the cause of that? What role did we have to play in that? What can we do to put an end to that, um, to get the root cause of it? But we have no foreign policy that reflects that. In fact, our foreign policy, as I said at the outset, I think, has caused the destabilization in many of these in many of these countries. Yeah, and, 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 and there's no reporting on, and there's no. I, I agree with that. Well, very underreported. And I, I will say, uh, I, I talked about Smedley Butler. The book he war, wrote is called War is a Racket. It was a speech. It became a short book in 1935. Here's a quote from it. And I don't think anything has changed since 1935. Quote, I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 through 1912, wherever I heard that name before. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. So Butler pointed out the root causes of when you destabilize countries for the benefit of the American government and the American, well, more importantly, the American economy, you know, and, and, and extrapolating that, take a look today. They talk about drugs coming over the border. And so the problem is with the country supplying the drugs without ever mentioning the simple fact that those supplies for drugs would find nobody would care if there wasn't an overwhelming demand for the drugs in the United States. So it's demand that's pushing it. It's the, and we're we're blaming those for supplying it and not looking at, as you said, a viable national policy or international policy to deal with the problems that we have helped cause ourselves. John, great pick. That that I uh, great story that we don't look at quite well enough. We'll take a short break and when we come back, our top picks for the most underrated stories of the year. Stick around, it'll be fun. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us, John Bennett and Michael Zeldin talking about uh, the most underreported stories of the year. Um, I, Michael, your number, what What do you, th what's your next or your best or your most, uh, what do you think is most important one of the year that you've 
not discussed? Well, I think that which interests me most is the failure to adequately cover inflation. That is, when you watch the way inflation is covered, it's all an interest rates uh, story without any regard to corporate consolidation as the primary driver of inflation, especially in, in food and energy area. Again, like with um, the immigration story that we talked about and how to your, the quote that you just read about how this fellow made the world safe for corporate interests, I think the same thing is true with our failure to honestly discuss how corporate consolidation is driving record inflation more than anything else. And Paul Krugman, the economist, has written about this some, and um, Reich, Robert Reich, has been written writing about this. But you can't find coverage on mainstream in the mainstream. Again, we talk. We say mainstream, but we're talking about TV news as much media. as anything else. But 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 TV more than anything else, where people get a lot of their news from, and you just don't hear them being honest. And why is that? It goes back to the point you've made, Brian, in your book, which I've talked about on this show um, repeatedly, which is corporate consolidation in media is tied with corporate consolidation in their um, primary advertisers. And there's no interest in honestly covering what the impact of all this consolidation is either on democracy from a, for, from a media organization standpoint or on the, the cost of food or the failure to pay livable wages. We just don't take an honest analysis of the economic um, realities of, of our um, democratic capitalist country. I, I don't think we understand. I, I think there are very few reporters who actually understand uh, the issue, but that's me. John? Yeah, well, first, uh, Michael took my third topic. Well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't understand it. And we, 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 I don't want to say fell for it necessarily. I don't necessarily think there was any nefarious intent from those uh, saying that that the, the economy needed to go into a recession, that recession would be a good thing long term. But the media hook, line and sinker uh, just bit down on that narrative and for months and months and months and months talked about a recession that as if happen. it was as if it was as inevitable as death and taxes. Uh, and guess what we haven't had? We haven't had a recession. And now, yet again, the media is shape-shifting and um, talking about how uh, we've avoided the recession, which actually goes back to my previous topic of why do Democrats hate Joe Biden? You, It, it appears as of right now that we are probably going to get to that, – that Joe Biden is going to get to add to his list of accomplishments that he steered the economy out of what was – what was described as an inevitable uh, recession. So we haven't covered that well at all. It is confusing. I understand that. Um, I'm sure a lot of economics, re longtime economics reporters and editors and columnists have taken the buyout or, or been laid off uh, over the years because the good ones 
stay a long time in the business because they're such a commodity, such a rare uh, commodity. So, you know, I think a lot of uh, the trends and 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 ills and ailments that we've seen in the business <clears throat> have have hurt us in covering the economy and especially something like inflation. And um, you know that just take that's the kind of beat. And Brian, you and I have have covered yeah. beats and those complicated beats. You just have to do it a long time. It's just you know, in in a lot of ways, it's just reps and and building sources and 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 becoming an expert and. Um, I, I sadly think a lot of those have been weeded out of the of the business. I think you're absolutely right, and and it's training in it too. It's you know it's like a specialist. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you can yeah. be a general practitioner as a doctor, or you can be a surgeon, or you could be you know you know whatever you know <laughs> ophthalmologist. But you you study those. You know, the, there are very few people left, I think, who really understand in our business what how the economy operates, and we rely upon and and jump on the bandwagon for some of the people like you saw in the, in the, uh, you know, and you and I stood out in those wonderful gaggles out in the uh, North lawn with Trump's people, his economic folk, not knowing <clears throat> what, the, what they were saying, but saying it was <laughs> such, was such a plum. And, you know, and for a lot of the younger reporters, they had no clue, you know, who was telling them, you know, major Mick would get out there and talk or, you know, Mick Mulvaney or any of these other uh, people that would speak and tell us about the economy and what the hell they were talking about. And economists disagree with each other all the time. And we just report, we follow it in merry measure. So I'm going to let you, since you picked, since Michael picked yours, but you got to have a backup. What is it, John? Oh yeah. We'll go with the backup QB here. I would like to see more coverage to the extent it can be covered. And again, a, a difficult topic, uh, the house of sod, and the rehabilitation of MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, Ooh, good, good topic. One fist pump, fist bump, excuse me, from the American president. And uh, and Mr. Bonesaw has been fully rehabbed, it seems like, especially on the world stage. You know, he's he's sitting in the big chair at the OPEC meeting again and, um, and really uh, crawfishing to use a Southern term on Joe Biden <laughs> on, on the price of oil per barrel, really crawfished on that one. And, um, you know, this is a villain's villain and, and he is, he's got his hands in a lot of things around the world. Um, we're allies because we have to be in, in a lot of ways, uh, frenemies, I think now is, is the term to use. Um, but but just the the speed at which he's come back and Brian, you and I always say everyone uh, comes back. Maybe not the Matt Lowers of the world and 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 those folks, but a lot of people are able to come back. Not a lot of them have 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 allegedly, wink wink, ordered the killing of a Washington Post columnist uh, at a diplomatic facility uh, using a bone saw to uh, begin disposing uh, of of Jamal Khashoggi's body. So. Um, that's something to watch. He is going to be a thorn in the U.S.'s side, no matter who the president is or how long Joe Biden's president or who comes after him. Uh, MBS is a young man and, uh, you know, he gets the greatest medical care in the world. He can certainly afford it. And um, this is going to be a a, a big thorn in, in, in America's side. And and with that fist bump, you know, Joe Biden was being he was being a realist in, in foreign policy thinking. But, um, you know, I think he created a big problem for himself. 
I think it's one of the most disappointing things that Joe Biden has done. He promised yeah. on the campaign trail to hold Jamal, uh, the killer of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, uh, responsible for the murder. Mm -hmm. We all know it was MBS. There, uh, and there have been a lot of 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 people who've put a lot of time and effort to showing the links, and we have done absolutely nothing, and we continue to re not report on it. Excellent choice in the story, Michael. Well, I don't disagree with what has been said, but of course, it then ties into all the other sort of left-leaning stories that that I've talked about, which is the reason for that is economic. Why yep. was he doing that? Because he was facing pressure uh, mm. from inflation stories and wanted to make sure that there was a supply of um, fossil fuels available so as to not, mm. uh, you know, sort of contribute to the the inflation narrative that was circulating and so he made a practical for his sure. political expediency yep. uh, decision um, that human rights is an internal matter and um just as we've done with you know countries all around the world china and pakistan and, and you know wherever you mm. want to look we still feed the corporate interests over the humanitarian interests yes if they yeah, just read their winning the poo don't feed the bear but <laughs> and you also need the saudis to push back on iran you, you can't effectively do that without the saudis and and biden knows that and you know i'm sounding critical here i'm not necessarily uh intending uh to say, i understand why biden did it but it i do think you know, it, it's like he he took one thorn, he took the thorn out of his his left side and then jammed right it right. in his right side. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but some of these problems you just can't solve. Uh, the presidency is a really hard job. That leads me to the my uh, pick of the, my big. I think the uh, and and thanks for the segue there, John. Uh, Iran, Iran and uh, Russia's partnership. In the war in Ukraine, I think the war in Ukraine is uh, and the uh, and the danger of nuclear conflagration is probably greater than it's ever been on the planet uh, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, it seems to have eased a little bit now, according to national security people. However, uh, there is a threat for expanded conflict, particularly in the Middle East, because Iran is supplying Russia with weaponry and drones. And I think that we've underreported we've we've boosted Zelensky in Ukraine saying they've done a great job but as the year comes to an end uh, Russia has more territory now than they did before they started last February this latest offensive they have fled some places they are they've uh, are restocking and I would expect a large offensive sometime in the spring when the weather breaks and the uh threat that Iran brings with this partnership with Russia cannot be understated nor forgotten. I think it's one of the stories that we're going to have to look forward at in, in 2023. And I think the danger to everyone on the planet, even if a tactical nuke is used in the field in Ukraine and it doesn't go any further, and it would be a miracle if it did not, the grain and, and stuff that is grown in Ukraine feeds helps feed the world. This is a very dangerous situation that we're in and i don't think we report on it very well and i think it's one of the most underreported my pick for the most the most underreported story of the year michael well as you know from the segment we did 
prior to this one, and you asked what was our holiday wishes, I said, peace in Ukraine. And this consolidation between Russia and Iran goes right in the face of, of that um, holiday season wish of mine. I think it's, I think you're right, Brian, it's a dangerous um, partnership. And I don't know what the world's reaction is going to be to it, but it has to be taken as seriously as you outlined in your observations. John, let you have the last word on it. Yeah, this is probably the hardest problem uh, that that Joe Biden faces and other leaders, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron from France and whoever the prime minister of the UK is uh, this hour, it, it could change uh, very soon. And and other Western leaders and and other you know other leaders in in the Middle East, you know, they certainly want to push back uh, against Iran and and they're concerned about Iran turning to Moscow and and, and that partnership. Um, there's so little that it seems like Biden and the West can do. Um, the Russians and the Iranians, as my cat saunters through, um, <laughs> as the Russians and the, the the Iranians, they don't see, they don't respond to to sanctions or um, you know Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush sending a carrier group closer to the Iranian coastline. They don't respond. They're they're they they just continue doing whatever the hell they're doing. Uh, and 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 you're right. If 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 Putin is unwise enough to use a tactical nuke in Ukraine. Um, what what can Joe Biden do and what what should he do? Is it worth, uh, you know, a proportional military response. response? So far, I don't get the vibe from Biden that that he's going to launch the nukes toward St. Petersburg or or some, you know, submarine factory on the on, on the coastline of Russia or, or, you know, some strategic target that he could take out. Um, I don't I don't think that he's going to do that. And and if he's not, what's going to change Putin's behavior uh, short of that? It's it's the it's the it's it's the hardest puzzle for Biden and other Western leaders right now. You're right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll take a look at more of this as, as the weeks go past and hopefully they will go past. Uh, but I find it uh, that that is uh, probably one of the stories that we'll we'll talk next week about stories that we think will dominate. 2023, as we start the new year, we'll probably be looking at some of the very same stories that we've just talked about today. But until then, happy Festivus for the rest of us. Enjoy your feats of strength. <laughs> and and boy, have I got some things to tell you people. I'm mad at all of you. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for Seinfeld for giving us that so I can say happy Festivus. I used to put that on the newspapers when I, when I ran a couple of local newspapers instead of greet holiday greetings i would just say happy festivus for the rest of us so with that in mind thanks the show is just asked the question this is our last show of the year thanks for joining us join us next week at the beginning of the new year for the stories they're going to be looking at in 2023 i am your host brian Karam. once again thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time